This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello everyone, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. Today I'm speaking with Garrett Hudson about No Accidental Death, the third in his historical mystery series set in Shanghai in the 1930s. In that decade before World War II, Shanghai hosted a thriving international community, the result of concessions made during the 19th century opium wars. The international settlement housed German, French, British, Russian, and U.S. residents, while the Japanese had their own settlement nearby. Most of the police in the settlement came from the U.K. or British India, then still a colonial entity. This is the world that Garrett Hudson's hero, Douglas Bainbridge, a lieutenant commander in the U.S. Navy, has come to love during his two-year immersion program in Chinese language and culture. By the time the third novel opens, however, Doug has spent some time away from his new home. Friday, July 2nd, 1937. Douglas Bainbridge wasn't prepared for how much he'd missed the noise, the stench, and the crowd of Shanghai. After six weeks away, the sight of the downtown skyline, the honking of the car horns, and the blast of ship whistles in the harbor caused his heart to soar as the cruiser dropped anchor in the middle of the crowded Wangpo River opposite the Garden Bridge. Sailors in white shore uniforms gathered near the middle of the starboard rail, along with a half-dozen marines in tan shore uniforms, while a trio of sampans rode up from the Shanghai side of the river. An ensign tossed down a rope ladder to the Chinese operator of the first sampan. The operator tied the bottom of the ladder to the side of his boat and signaled up to the ensign, who began directing sailors down two at a time. You got shore leave, Commander? Doug turned around to see the smiling face of Benjamin Trebinsky, seaman first class. Ben was a couple of inches shorter than Doug, perhaps five foot ten, but he was broader. His crooked grin formed a dimple in his round cheeks, and his blue eyes shined with excitement. Next to him stood seaman second class Nick Bonadio, a wiry sailor with thick black hair under his white sailor cap. He was looking off towards shore, and rubbing his hands together in anticipation. And now, please join me in welcoming Garrett Hudson. Hi, Garrett. Thanks for agreeing to talk with me today. Hi, Carolyn. Thanks for having me. I'm glad to be here. You have a lovely essay on your website about how you became a writer. Uh, listeners who'd like to learn more can find that under author bio at garretthudson.com. So let me ask you instead what drew you to the settings of your non-Shanghai novels, uh, many of which involve spies. 
Sure. Yeah. I'm a fan of World War II era spy novels uh, by Ken Follett. I've been a Ken Follett fan for quite some time. And that eventually drew me to the books of other writers like Alan First, um, Joseph Cannon, David Downing. Um, and their stories always portray an underworld where everything's a bit morally gray and people do bad things, but for all the right reasons. And there's just a whole lot of moral ambiguity in those stories that I always find really intriguing. Um, plus many of those novels are set in Paris, which is a city I've visited on a couple of occasions and, and know fairly well. I also speak French. I was a French major in college, so it was pretty easy for me to, to visualize these settings whenever I would read about them. And then equally easy to imagine my own stories, my own stories being set there, um, just with different types of characters than what I typically saw in these spy novels. And that's how I invented Oliver Carmichael, who's my, uh, protagonist in the, in Grey Paris. Um, and he's an American musician in Paris and all of his bohemian friends who populate that novel. Um, when I come up with a story, I pretty much always start with a setting, a time and a place. And then I start to think up characters who would inhabit that story world. And creating the characters is really the most fun for me. I, I love that part. I love diving deep into their personalities, figuring out their backgrounds, their hopes and their fears. And that really drives the story for me then once I have the setting. Yeah, I love the characters too. I I used to find it the hardest part, but um, really, that's the most fun is is exploring these people and figuring out what the story is that they're trying to tell you, even more than the one that you invented. And how did you get interested in Shanghai in the nineteen thirties? Well, that, that was quite by accident, really. I was surfing the internet one evening, um, and this was way back in in twenty thirteen, and I was reading a news story about some Americans who were they were reviving the old jazz scene at historic venues in Shanghai. And the article got into a bit of the background of the international community that lived there in the 1920s and 30s. And I was really intrigued by that. And that just led me down an internet rabbit hole, following links, you know, clicking through things. And, and really, I think within a couple of days, I had this folder full of printouts about old Shanghai, uh, the, the diverse community there, the nightlife, the, the corruption, the drug trafficking, um, the violent suppression of the communists and the labor movement, um, even the expatriate uh, Korean provisional government that was there. And there was just so much opportunity in all of that for crime and intrigue. And I thought to myself, I can set a murder mystery there. And, and mysteries are my first love in literature. That's what I really came up on. Um, and I wanted to set one there, but there's also so much political intrigue at the time in Shanghai that I was drawn to maybe also put a spy thriller there. So in the end, I, I kind of combined those two impetuses, and the result then was Doug Bainbridge and the Jade Dragon. Doug's an analyst at ONI, which is the Office of Naval Intelligence, and he gets drawn into a murder investigation when a childhood friend of his from San Francisco is found murdered in an alley, and the police dismiss it as a robbery that didn't end well, and Doug ends up solving that crime. Another important character is Lucy Kinsler, whom we meet in the first chapter of The Jade Dragon. Uh, I'm not sure how much you want to reveal about her relationship with Doug, because it does evolve over the course of the series. But tell us what you're comfortable sharing about her. Oh, sure. Yeah, Lucy is one of those characters who showed up accidentally, and I just fell in love with her. I, um, When I'm writing, I don't plan out my novels a whole lot in advance, but one of the things that I always do before I start writing the book is to work out the major characters and even a lot of the secondary characters. And I really get to know them before I ever start writing the story. 
And then that way, the characters are driving the story in a way that just makes it more realistic and it feels more authentic. But of course, when you're getting into the actual writing, there are certain situations that call for minor tertiary type characters to populate a scene, uh, really just to perform a function and then go away. And Lucy was supposed to be one of those characters. She just sort of materialized out of thin air the first day of writing when I was working on that opening scene. And she was just supposed to have a conversation with Doug and help illustrate a little bit of his character. But she really took on a life of her own, at, her, her own after that. Isn't that fun when that happens? <laughs> yes, it is. And she just kept reappearing in the story until I got to about the midway point. Uh, which was about the time I discovered that the character I'd really intended to be Doug's love interest all along, it just wasn't ever going to be that. <laughs> it just didn't fit. But Lucy fit that role really perfectly. And so it was just this serendipity, really, that I could slide her right into that role. And it worked. It, it really worked. So tell us a little bit about her as a personality. Sure. Yeah. Um, Lucy is um, a very modern person. Um, she smokes, she drinks, she swears, she does all of the things that, that really aggravate her mother. Um, she's really one of my favorite characters. She's very matter of fact. She's, she's crazy smart and well-educated. Um, and, and she does a lot of, um, being a counterweight to Doug in a lot of ways. She helps him to see things in new ways. And she's also not afraid to call him out on his crap when he's, you know, not doing what he should be doing. She, she helps to steer him and make him better, I think. Yes, she does. And tell us a bit about him, too, as a personality, how he contrasts with her. <laughs> Poor Doug. <laughs> his heart's in the right place, um, but he's constrained by a rather rigid upbringing um, that makes him think that things are supposed to be a certain way. Even, you know, maybe secretly he wishes they weren't, but he's, he's still constrained by the way he was brought up. And as a result of the way he was raised, he, he has this very strong moral compass. Um, but that also sometimes make him, makes him conflicted about the right things to do in any given situation. So throughout the series, part of his character arc is learning to be more open about things, to see things in a new way. Um, and in the beginning, he can be a little bit uptight. Uh, definitely sometimes, but that gradually lessens over time. And he learns a lot from uh, Tim, uh, the victim of the Jade Dragon. He learns a lot from Tim posthumously. Um, he also learns a lot from Lucy and from other friends that they make over the time. Um, he has a professional background as an intelligence analyst, which equips him to put together clues, follow leads, and, and that helps him to figure out the mystery. He's really smart, and he can analyze very disparate pieces of information and, and just form a picture of what that might mean. And this is a skill that, you know, not only did it make him a good intelligence analyst, but it also serves him well during his years in Shanghai. That's a perfect setup for, uh, tell us a little bit more about uh, the Jade Dragon and, and the basic problem there, not, not how it's resolved, but what exactly is going on? Uh, sure. Yeah. So um, Doug has just arrived in Shanghai um, on a two-year immersion. Um, and this I based a little bit off of something that 
uh, Owen and I really did in the interwar years in Japan, they would put uh, intelligent analysts into, I can't remember which city in Japan it was now, but they would stay there and be fully immersed in Japanese culture and language for about three years. And I thought to myself, well, why couldn't they do that in China as well? Um, I don't have any evidence that they actually did do that in China, but, but for my own purposes, I thought, well, that would be a good way to insert someone into Shanghai. Um, so that's what I did. And at the beginning of the Jade Dragon, he's arriving in Shanghai, a little bit of a fish out of water. Um, he has some background in Chinese language, but this is his first actual experience there. And he runs into Tim McIntyre, who was a childhood friend of his from when they were growing up in San Francisco. And Tim is now a reporter working in Shanghai. And he offers to take Doug out, show him some of that famous nightlife in Shanghai. Um, and so they're out at a Chinese nightclub called the Jade Dragon. And they're enjoying a show there. And then Tim goes out at intermission, but he never comes back. You know, after a while, Doug starts to get a little worried and he goes looking for him and he finds Tim lying in a pool of blood in an alley. Uh, the police just assume that it was a robbery that went south because that's the way it appears. And Doug can't convince them that it was just made to look that way. He knows in his gut that this isn't right, but he can't prove it. And then later he gets tasked with going through Tim's things to prepare to send some things back to Tim's parents in the States. And he finds clues that Tim was digging into the Shanghai underworld. And also at the same time, he was investigating Japanese infiltration of the Korean provisional government. So then suddenly Doug has a couple of different angles working on this, uh, a couple of different scenarios of someone who might have wanted to kill Tim. And this is really when Doug's moral compass kicks in, I think. Um, he just can't let it alone. He can't just let it be something that the police don't solve. So even at risk to himself and at risk to his secret position, he looks into Tim's death to figure out who murdered him and why. The second book is Assassin's Hood. Uh, it begins mm -hmm. just six months after the Jade Dragon in 1935, but Lucy has already left Shanghai. Uh, where is Doug at the beginning of this novel relative to its predecessor? By this point, he's much more comfortable in his immersion in Shanghai. He's got regular hangouts. He's mastered the local language. Um, he's gathered a circle of friends around him who become quite important to him. And also Lucy does plan to come back after she finishes college. So life seems pretty good. Uh, but then on page two of the novel, there are shots fired in the street uh, near where he's enjoying a couple of tea and, and all hell breaks loose. That's <laughs> That sets it up very succinctly. Uh, Doug does make friends in Shanghai, as you mentioned, uh, Chinese, Europeans, and Americans. Uh, he has the advantage that even when he gets there, he speaks Mandarin Chinese, and he quickly learns uh, to be comfortable in Shanghainese. Um, some of his friends reappear uh, in later novels, and others don't. Uh, which are your favorites, and how do they aid or oppose Doug in his character journey to fit in, to solve a mystery, or simply to survive? Well, obviously, for starters, there's Lucy, um, and we've talked about her and how she she helps Doug to see things from new perspectives. Um, and she does come back in the middle of Assassin's Hood, and then she's there for the remainder of the series. Um, another one of my favorites, though, is Jonesy. His real name is Art Jones, Arthur Jones, uh, but everybody just calls him Jonesy. Um, and there are certain minor characters at various points in the series that'll say, everybody knows Jonesy. And that's a truism throughout this. He, he gets around. He has connections all over the place. Everybody knows Jonesy. Um, and that really serves the story well, I think, because he has all these connections and he can help Doug find clues. He was initially Tim's friend, um, the, the, the man who was murdered in the Jade Dragon. Um, but he's significantly older. He's middle-aged, 
world wise, maybe a little bit world weary too. Um, he's got this very gruff exterior and he's very blunt and in your face, but on the inside, he's really a big softy. Um, he, he cares about things. He cares about people. Uh, he just doesn't always let it show. Um, in the first book of the series, the Jade dragon, he and Doug are sort of forced to work together by circumstances. Their, their shared sense of obligation to Tim and Tim's memory. But then subsequently in assassin's hood, and then even more so in the third book, Noah accidental death, they develop this sort of tentative friendship. Um, maybe they're sort of frenemies at times, but, but that just keeps things interesting. Um, and they certainly have very polar opposite worldviews, uh, which definitely makes things interesting. Um, and then it also introduces a whole other circle of friends for Doug, um, people that he's, he's met in the intervening months since Tim's murder. And one of the things I really enjoyed about writing this circle um, mostly Americans and Canadians uh, in their mid to late twenties, uh, educated, affluent. They they love to party. They really enjoy getting their drink on. We'll put it that way. Um, and it's funny. A lot of their antics remind me of myself and my friends at their age. And so it it can be kind of fun to you know sort of relive those days a little bit vicariously through Kenny and Abby and Pete and Julia and all. Um, and they're just a lot of fun to write. But I. I also try to work really hard to make them real people. They're not just caricatures of party animals. They have their own hopes, their own fears. They all care about Doug quite a bit and Lucy, uh, but, but they do like to party a lot. <laughs> yes, it's it's important to remember that they're pretty young, this group. I mean, they're really in their early 20s for the most part, right? Uh, yeah, Doug and his friends are, are more mid-20s, but Lucy is younger. She is definitely in her early 20s. Uh, one of my favorite characters is Charlie and uh, his lover, Bao. Um, so could you tell us a little bit about Charlie? Yeah. Um, they kind of become an important touchstone in Doug's life. He's he's a little put off by it at first, but they, they help him and they are very neighborly in spite of his, you know, distance from them. And, and he comes around and they, they become very important to him after a while. Uh, Charlie is a middle-aged British man, and uh, Bao is a younger Chinese man. They live across the hall from Doug. They're a, a same-sex couple that lives discreetly, but not really secretly. Um, it's just they're very discreet. Um, one of the things I love about exploring the interwar years of the 1920s and 30s is that there was this formation of gay and lesbian communities in certain cities around the world. New York, uh, definitely, uh, Paris and London, um, but also in Shanghai. And these were places where gay and lesbian folk could be sort of semi-open, um, kind of hidden from view from most people, but still easy to find if you were looking for it. One of the aspects of LGBT life in these enclaves during the 20s and 30s was a, a certain balance between you know, public discretion on the one hand and then purposely you know, and, and forcefully being themselves in opposition to the Victorian mores that were falling away at this point um, but that had previously held sway. Uh, and in very in many ways, the twenties were a reaction against Victorianism and, and that kind of continued into the thirties as well. Um, and this was something that just, it wasn't possible for them to behave this way prior to world war one. Um, but it was able to flower in certain specific places anyway, during the, the interwar years. Um, and then subsequently things became even more difficult after world war two, it kind of took a step back in the 1950s, but that's another story for another day. 
And that, of course, is part of Doug's struggle because he grew up, as you said, in this very restrictive um, Christian environment. And he is, you know, he's a guy, a straight guy in the 30s, or at least mostly straight guy. <laughs> um, and so he is absolutely not prepared uh, for the experience of being in Shanghai uh, because it's so different and, and because it's a natural draw for people who have been discriminated against back in the States. That's very true. Um, Shanghai was a draw for a lot of reasons. For For one thing, it was a little bit free of the Great Depression that had been gripping almost the, the entire rest of the world. Uh, but you know, Shanghai was booming. There were jobs there. And so a lot of people who couldn't find work in the U.S. or Britain or wherever went to Shanghai where they could find work. Um, and that's certainly the case with some of Doug's friends as well. Um, and as, in terms of like Charlie and Bao and, and Jonesy and whatnot, cities in general have always had more LGBT folk than, than smaller towns. And, and partly that's just because they have more people, of course, but there's also a certain amount of anonymity that you can get in a large city that you just don't have available to you in a small town. Um, so queer folk have always been drawn to big cities, um, particularly New York, London, Paris, uh, but Shanghai as well. And, and Shanghai was a port city. And historically, port cities have always drawn every conceivable type of person to them. Um, and they've been among the easiest places over time for gay men and lesbians to find one another. Um, so naturally, I like to bring that element to my experience of old Shanghai as well. So let's talk about No Accidental Death. Um, as I mentioned, the book begins in July 1937. Uh, Doug is no longer undercover in the immersion program. Uh, what is he doing when we catch up with him? Well, by this time, his immersion has ended, and so he has gotten uh, the hoped-for position of being a shipboard intelligence officer based out of Shanghai. Uh, the United States Navy had an entire squadron of ships based there called the Yangtze Patrol that was tasked with patrolling the Yangtze River and the China Seas and making sure that everything was safe for American shipping, um, whether from pirates or from, you know, foreign powers or whatever. Um, so since this was based in Shanghai, it was very easy for me to continue that storyline there. And this was the position that, that Doug wanted. He didn't want to leave Shanghai. Um, so he's on ship. He's able to, you know, both observe physically um, Japanese naval maneuvers and also intercept radio broadcasts and decode them and whatnot. And so that's his new job at the beginning of this story. And how does he become involved in investigating this murder? Now he's in an official capacity, which I liked because, uh, you know, there are only so many times that normal people stumble over dead bodies and <laughs> <laughs> decide to pursue them. <laughs> yes, this is very end. true. Yeah. So, so war has broken out um, almost immediately after the story starts. It breaks out in the north of China in July of 1937. Um, and, and the Japanese pretty quickly occupied Beijing and the surrounding areas. But by August, those tensions in Shanghai that have been brewing since there was a string of assassinations the previous year, those tensions boil over into an armed conflict between Japanese and Chinese forces who are based in Shanghai. Um, the Japanese Navy sends in reinforcements, and a full-scale battle erupts on the northern edges of Shanghai. And this goes right up to the boundary of the international settlement where Doug and all of his friends live. In fact, it's less than a mile from Doug's apartment, and there's an understandable panic around the area and all. Um, but then one of the seamen from Doug's ship is found shot to death one night um, right there in the urban battleground, just feet from the international settlement boundary. 
And at first it seems like he might have drunkenly and very foolishly gone to take a gander at the fighting and he just got himself killed that way. But the autopsy reveals it was not a Chinese or a Japanese military weapon that shot him. So it, it was not an accidental death. He was murdered. Now, what's interesting about this time period, the United States had really scaled back the military in the interwar years, um, but particularly the Navy. And one of the results of that was that the position that previously did all of the criminal investigation, it was a position called the Master at Arms, it had been eliminated and it just no longer existed in the 1930s. So it wasn't really clear who would take the lead in a murder investigation for the Navy at this point in history. And I had decided that I wanted their squadron leader to assign Doug to that role. But it turned out with my research that really works kind of logically. Um, you know, most of us are probably familiar with NCIS from the television series by that name. And, and it's an organization that since the 1960s has done all the criminal investigation for the Navy. NCIS is actually a division of ONI, the Office of Naval Intelligence. So retroactively, it kind of made sense that Doug would be the one who would lead the murder investigation for the Navy. And tell us a bit about the victim. Sure. Yeah, his name is Nick Bonadio. Uh, he's a seaman second class, one of uh, 300 men on Doug's ship. So they're, they're really a, a kind of like a small town type community. Everybody knows everybody on ship. Um, he's kind of a brash person, very outgoing, um, also kind of driven to get what he wants. And he can sometimes rub people the wrong way. Um, but he also has very loyal friends who stand by him, even though his actions sometimes irritate them. There's a lot of people that could have had motives for wanting him gone. Um, and then once the autopsy reveals that he was shot by a Colt 45, um, that's one of the most common handguns in the world at this time. But it, it was also the, the most favored model used by the, the Shanghai organized crime gangs, but it was also the standard issue firearm of the U.S. military. And there was a British version of it that their military used. So there are all kinds of possibilities on who might have killed Nick. And almost immediately there are questions on what was he involved in? You know, he'd gone AWOL at one point and was unaccounted for for a couple of days. Um, so he could have gotten into any amount of trouble there. And so Doug has a lot of threads to follow and all this time, he's also already overworked with the Japanese invasion. He's got to kind of work this in on the side, uh, but he's very driven to make sure that he can solve who killed Nick and, and get some justice for Nick. And Nick has been in um, some trouble in the nightclubs of Shanghai as well um, because of a woman. Yes. Um, so this was actually something I had read once uh, way back when I was doing all my research on the nightlife for the Jade Dragon. There was a, a real life bar brawl between American seamen and Italian seamen in 1937. And I thought to myself, boy, I, I'm going to use this someday. And so I did in this, uh, in this novel, No Accidental Death, I imagine that the person who starts that brawl fight is Nick Bonadio um, over a woman that he's competing with an Italian seaman for. And it, it turns into this just full scale brawl between Americans and Italians. And so he's got a little bit of an enemy in an Italian seaman there. You mentioned the Japanese conquest of Shanghai, and it, it's a pure coincidence, but as it happened, I was reading this third book of yours, No Accidental Death, at the same time as the Taliban were taking over Afghanistan. And I realized that although I had known you know, pretty much forever <laughs> that the Japanese did take Shanghai, I had never really thought about how it was done. And so I was really fascinated to read that part of it, because you bring a real immediacy to the experience. Can you tell readers who probably are 
you know, just as ignorant as I was about how exactly the uh, Japanese managed to do that. Yeah, absolutely. It it really turned into a, a very street by street, house by house kind of conflict. Um, you know, readers are probably familiar with uh, Stalingrad was that way um, a few years later in the Soviet Union. Uh, but Shanghai really kind of set the model for that. The Japanese and the Chinese fought literally house to house, block by block. Um, prior to this war, the Japanese had a regiment of Marines stationed in Shanghai as part of their treaty right to, to guard their own citizens there. Um, the U.S. also had its own regiment of Marines there, and several other countries did as well um, through their treaties with China. Um, the Japanese Marines in particular were on high alert because of all of the assassinations that had occurred the year before, which is described in Assassin's Hood. Um, so then once a war broke out, in the north of China, tensions ramped up within Shanghai itself. It only took one spark, really, um, and that was an incident out at an aerodrome west of the city in which two Japanese Marines and one Chinese soldier were found shot in an apparent shootout that that really had mysterious origins and outcome, and, and no one could really agree on what happened and who shot whom, etc. Um, and that just immediately exploded. The Japanese Marines and the Chinese troops in the area started skirmishing. The skirmishes blew up into full-scale street fights, um, and they came right up to the boundary of the international settlement. There were Japanese ships anchored in the river that started shelling the battle zone where the uh, Chinese positions were, and it just started to rage out of control. Uh, Doug being in the area, he was in a perfect position to observe for the Navy and report back on what he'd seen. And, and we do have historical records that the officers for ONI did that role. They observed the Japanese and Chinese forces and, and subsequently learned a lot of things that would prove useful to the U.S. later during World War II. And uh, while he's there, like I said, he's very busy with that. And then Nick is found dead and that throws a monkey wrench into everything. In earlier books, um, the communists are an important counterforce to the Chinese National Army. Um, but here their role is much more muted. Is there a historical reason for that? Uh, yes, there is. Um, during the Sino-Japanese War, the, the communist army that Mao Zedong led, they were active in the north. They were attacking the Japanese positions around Beijing from their strongholds to the west. And then uh, Chiang Kai-shek's nationalist army was really the one that took the lead against the Japanese in the Yangtze Valley. Now, there are also historical accounts that, that local communists there performed commando-style attacks behind the Japanese lines around Shanghai. So I, I did bring that out a little bit in the story, but it, it wasn't really a major factor in the Battle of Shanghai. That was much more done by the Nationalist Army. What would you like people to take away from No Accidental Death and its predecessors? Um, just that this is a, a time and a place that isn't very well known uh, to a lot of Western readers, I think. And so I would love for people to learn about a place and time that's not familiar to them. Um, even if they are fans of historical fiction, this is probably an area that's not very familiar to them. I think it was a really fascinating world there. Um, and I would just love for the readers to be able to immerse themselves in that as they journey with Doug and, and Lucy and Jonesy and their friends. Uh, I hope, obviously, that the mysteries entertain them, but I also hope they learn some things that they might have never even thought to look up. This novel has just come out as in in, within the last two weeks. Um, do you already have another in the works? Uh, yes, I do. Yeah. Um, I'm in the research phase right now for book four in the series, um, which is going to center around an area that was called the Shanghai Badlands. Um, and it'll take place the following year, 1938. Um, 
I'm planning right now to write the first draft in November and December. Um, I always participate in NaNoWriMo every year. Um, for anyone that's not familiar with that, the month of November is National Novel Writing Month, and it's an annual challenge to write 50,000 words of fiction in 30 days, which is uh, it's a tough challenge. I, I do it every year, and I love it, though, and, and that's one of my major times to, to do a first draft. Um, so there's definitely at least going to be a four book in the series. Um, I might do a fifth one too, but who knows? And then at the moment, I'm I'm doing revisions on a sequel to my novel, Grey Prix. Um, Grey Prix took place in Paris in 1940 and 41, and the sequel takes place in Lyon and Algiers in 1942. So right at the moment, I'm doing revisions for that, while at the same time, I'm doing research for book four in my Shanghai series. Um, and I have other stuff I need to get back to as well. Um, I have a manuscript actually that, that might interest you, Carolyn, um, that I wrote several years ago set in Renaissance France um, at the court of Henri III. And um, prior to ascending the French throne, he had been the elected king of Poland. And I know you're very interested in 16th century Russia and Poland. And, and so there's a connection there. Um, that's a novel I need to get back to. Now, which thing comes out next? I, I can't say, but uh, we'll see. Oh, good. Well, I'll look forward to the one about Henri III. Um, that would be really interesting, as I know he was he was king of Poland for a while. And uh, and I'm glad to hear that we will get more Shanghai mysteries because I'm really enjoying this series. Yeah, I do too. It's it's one of my favorite things that I've written, and I I love these characters, and I want to keep spending more time with them. Well, thank you so much for sharing your time with us, Garrett. Well, thank you for having me. I enjoyed it. And thank you for listening to our podcast. Once again, I'm C.P. Leslie, the host of New Books in Historical Fiction, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. And today I've been talking with Garrett Hudson about No Accidental Death. Find out more about him at www.garretthudson.com. That's G-A-R-R-E-T-T-H-U-T-S-O-N as one word. Like us on Facebook, search for NB Historical Fiction, and follow us on Twitter at New Books Histfic. If you do, you'll see each time we post a new interview. You can find out more about me and my books at www.cplesley.com, where I upload expanded posts about the interviews and in general discuss history, historical fiction, and the rapidly changing publishing industry. Goodbye until my next conversation about historical fiction on the New Books Network. <laughs>